Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're into the last episode of the Centenary Declaration season, where we've looked at books about Israel from writers both within and without, including Syed Kashua, Asaf Kavran, Orly Castell-Bloom, Dror Burstein, Zachary Lazar, S. Yazar, and Yoel Hoffman. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English. Some are contemporary, others classics. Today, we're finishing off the season by looking at a book that's unusual for the podcast, a non-fiction book and an academic text at that. The book is called The Binding of Isaac, and it's about Genesis chapter 22, the story of the binding and near sacrifice of Abraham's son, Isaac. The subtitle to the book, which gets straight to the point, is A Model of Religious Disobedience. So, The Binding of Isaac, A Model of Religious Disobedience. The author is Omri Boom. It was published in 2007. Genesis 22 in the Bible tells the story that follows when God orders Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. As Boom's book focuses on this chapter, I think maybe we should just hear the original read out loud, beginning to end. We'll revisit the sections later, but here first is the whole thing. Translation by Gunter Plout. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham answered, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your favored one, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights which I will point out to you. So early next morning, Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his servants, You stay here with the ass. The boy and I will go up there. We will worship, and we will return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. He himself took the firestone and the knife, and the two walked off together. Then Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he answered, Yes, my son. And he said, Here are the firestone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. When Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the site Adonai Yireh, 
whence the present saying, On the mount of the Lord there is vision. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I swear, the Lord declares, Because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your favored one, I will bestow my blessing upon you, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants, because you have obeyed my command. Abraham then returned to his servants, and they departed together for Beersheba. In brief, then, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham had waited a long, long time for Isaac to be born. Isaac was the son that God had promised him. The son God had promised would be the first in a long and fruitful line. And then, this is the son that God orders Abraham to kill. In Genesis, Abraham leads Isaac to Mount Moriah and is on the verge of sacrificing Isaac when he is stopped by an angel. By going this far, having proven his obedience to God, Abraham is allowed to spare Isaac and sacrifice a ram instead. This passage is read to and by Jews every year on the Day of Atonement, and the reason why this story is given such prominence in the recital schedule is because it tells its adherents, Jews and all followers of monotheistic religions, that what is key in their religious life is following God's commandment. No matter whether the commandment is reasonable or unreasonable, or even against reason, the message is, one must follow God's orders. Or so we are told. And the fact that this story makes little sense when subjected to reason-based analysis merely reinforces the fact that this is not about reason, just follow God's word. Bohm quotes a scholar in summing up the point this way. The founding father's willingness to sacrifice his son as proof of devotion created an inexhaustible store of spiritual credit upon which future generations may draw. Omri Bum's treatise, however, argues forcefully and effectively that obedience to God's word is not what Genesis 22 is about. In his eyes, that's diametrically opposed to the actual meaning of the story and the reason it's given such prominence. Bum begins with a question that gets to the very heart of the conventional interpretation. By promising to sacrifice his son, is Abraham in fact proving his special obedience to God in the context of the time in which he lived? The answer provided here is yes and no. We can say yes because in the Near East, during this time, sacrifice of the firstborn son is periodically enacted. Typically, it is done by rulers during times of crisis, and it is meant to ensure victory or ensure survival. However, as the first century philosopher Philo of Alexandria points out, Abraham did not quite fit this mold. Being neither a ruler nor under threat of extinction, Abraham's sacrifice would have been exceptional. And that is because, unlike those others, Abraham's act wasn't a form of exchange, but rather a demonstration of total fealty. Hence the yes and no to Bohm's original question. There is nothing definitive in the historical context to say that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son was typical or normal. Nor can we say it was extraordinary. He could just have been following the rules, or he could have been breaking them in a special way. Because we don't know for certain anymore, the conventional interpretation, which is based on a kind of certainty, is not overturned, but certainly is slightly dented. 
From inquiring into the historical context, Bum's next step is to inquire into the text itself. He does this by arguing that what we regard as Genesis 22, in fact, what we regard as the Torah or Bible, is in fact a patchwork of texts composed of an original set of stories with later interpolations. In Genesis 22, the angel's words are, Bum argues, later interpolation. He bases this assertion on a few points. One is the arguments of previous analysts of the Torah, the 12th century scholar Ibn Ezra, the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza, and an 18th century professor Jean Astruc, the latter noting specifically a difference in the material between those who call God Elohim and those who call God Yahweh. Elohim is a generalized term that applies to a singular God as well as many gods or idols. Yahweh is more like a proper name for the Hebrew God. In the Torah, those who write about Elohim and those who write about Yahweh often seem to be referring to two separate entities with different natures and different interests and goals. In Genesis 22, it is Elohim who tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and Yahweh who addresses Abraham through the mouth of the intervening angel. Further evidence of the different sources and possibly ends of the texts come in the form of different linguistic styles. This becomes clear if we compare the voice that tells us the story of Abraham's journey and actions and the voice of the intervening angel. I'm going to give a sample of both. First, Abraham. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. He himself took the firestone and the knife, and the two walked off together. They arrived at the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. When Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Then the voice that speaks through the angel. Then the angel said, Do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. And the angel said, By myself I swear, the Lord declares, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your favored one, I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. All the nations on the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants, because you have obeyed my command. In stylistic terms, the first gives us what Bum describes as driving, basic, cumulative descriptions. The second are florid, sometimes redundant, interruptions. Bum suggests we reread the story of the binding of Isaac, first with, then without the angels. And if we do that, the effect is radical. Based on this difference, Bum argues that Genesis 22 verses 1 to 10 plus 13 and 19 constitute the original story. The intervening verses were added by another author later. In the story without the angels, Abraham is not stopped from sacrificing his son. Rather, he stops himself. He does this without instructions from God. In fact, he does this against the instructions of God. It is Abraham's own decision to sacrifice the ram instead. Now that is a twist.
Divided into parts, an original and a later intervention, the story of Abraham and Isaac, always considered a model of obedience to God, is now, as Omri Boom describes it, a model of disobedience, Abraham making his own decision against God's commandment. To Boom, however, Abraham's autonomy is not a surprise. Given Abraham's previous dealings with God, Genesis 22 was always likely to be a story of the individual quarreling with, rather than submitting to, God. As evidence of this, Bohm offers Abraham's previous dealings with God during the destruction of Sodom. Specifically, Abraham's argument that God should spare the city for the possibility that there may be some good citizens among its ranks. In part of the story, God and Abraham argue over the number of good citizens required for God to spare the city, and though God does eventually smite Sodom, the family of Lot are spared. From this story, Bohm extracts the notion expressed in another excellent book, Zakor, Z-A-K-H-O-R, by the historian Yosef Haim Yerushalmi, that Judaism is distinguished by the meeting of God and man on the earthly plane, in this case to argue over the fate of the city of Sodom. Indeed, Bohm believes that in sparing Lot's family, we could argue that God's ethics are derived from human ethics, and that Abraham's role is to hold God to the highest possible standard, which turns out to be a human standard. From this perspective, then, the events on Mount Moriah are a reenactment of a previous negotiation between an individual, Abraham, and God above, one that forms the basis of all monotheistic ethics. Except, does it? In reality, I mean, does Bohm's argument win out? The case Bohm puts forward is highly persuasive. It's wonderfully humane. It's good in a basic and moral sense. In arguing that Abraham rebelled against God's orders and did something that was difficult but better, sparing his child Isaac instead of sacrificing him, Bohm sets out a path in life that is richer than mere obedience. And yet that's still not how we conventionally interpret this passage. Year after year, the story of the binding of Isaac is regarded as a story of obedience to God, who knows more, who knows better, who sees the future, understands what's best. The negotiation that Bohm describes between the individual and the deity, that's non-existent. In the usual telling, it's God who gives the order to sacrifice Isaac and God who stops it. Abraham is more or less inconsequential, and so are we. So the question becomes, why is an argument that is persuasive not accepted? The answer may come, in part, in one of the later chapters of Bohm's book. After analyzing Genesis 22 historically and textually, Bohm goes to later scholars and philosophers, pausing especially on the works of the great 12th century polymath Maimonides. Maimonides theorized that Bible stories had overt and implicit meanings, and that the two were often at odds with one another. In Genesis 22, according to this line of thinking, the overt meaning is the conventional understanding, obedience, faith. And the implicit, subtle, or what Maimonides calls esoteric interpretation sees Abraham as disobedient. There is a great scaffolding that Maimonides erects to buttress his theories, but at a basic level. As a textual analysis, the point is axiomatic. Any story that is rich will have at least two and often more messages. And in this profusion, paradox may arise. To Maimonides, the overt message is for the layperson, the implied message for the scholar, and what he has said in the 12th century seems to have been proven with Bohm's book in the 21st.
Maimonides' description of the overt and implicit text makes sense in context, but leaves a question that, to my mind, was unanswered by Bum. This is not a criticism, merely an observation, and in fact, in some ways, a request for the author to elaborate. The question is, in a text that we know to have been redacted, added to, reformed, why do two such contradictory possible interpretations remain? Because in Bum's description, this book of laws, the Torah, ends up reading like an automatically self-subverting text. On the one hand, anything that uses language with any richness or complexity will tend to paradox, subversion, even irony. Strange to call the Torah ironic, but there's no other way after reading Bum. You can go to Nietzsche's On Truth and Lies in the Extra Moral Sense to read further on the shifting sands of words. But Bum's case is built on something far more solid than the inevitable uncertainty of words. The Binding of Isaac shows that just beneath the surface of the story is another layer that burns with opposition. The only response I can come up with is that paradox was the intention in the writing, the redacting, the interpolations. It's an illustration of what the character Tancredi says in Lampedusa's novel The Leopard, quote, for things to stay the same, they're going to have to change, unquote. This changing to remain the same is true of all institutions, so why not the Torah, the basis of the institution known as monotheism? At the same time, however, I wonder if there are historical reasons for the text's doubleness, probably more than doubleness, but that's far beyond my field. The Binding of Isaac ends by comparing a later and similarly consequential story of a father sacrificing a son, the son being Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus also climbs up a hill. Like Isaac, he is forced to carry the wood on which he will be sacrificed. And like Isaac, Jesus is called a lamb. Jesus is taunted as king of the Jews, and in his time, Isaac was destined by God to be a great father to those same people. However, there is a major difference in these stories. In the Christian story, a religion is founded on the killing of the son. In Genesis 22, The survival of Abraham's seed was not the result of his willingness to kill the beloved son. It was the result of his refusal to do so. In offering this lesson, warning, subversion, the end of this book displays all the elements that make it, through and through, a fascinating analysis. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the season. The one following will be on works about art and artists and those who want to be, but don't quite make it. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. Lastly, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Natalie Matheson, Hakan Osgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of the show, and as always, go Jays.